Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Would you stand please for the reading of the Word of God? Speaking out of Genesis chapter 19, verse 23, a passage of scripture that we're going to read this week, and we're going to read not next week, but the week beyond as well. So this is kind of a prelude to a message that will continue in two weeks' time. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot, Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Father, I pray that you'd impress upon us your word, that you'd speak to us and open our hearts and our minds to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I said, this is the first, actually, kind of a prelude. It's not a part one and part two, per se, but this is a prelude to give greater depth and understanding to the events of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, In about two weeks' time, we'll discuss that a little bit more in depth. Um, To address this effectively today, I need to tell you a little story about a man named... Think this is a sitcom to you? It's Abraham. Okay? I set you up for that one. Um, to get an understanding of, of where this passage, and it says brimstone and fire, but this is where we actually get the term fire and brimstone. You know, and so I guess technically you could say this is a fire and brimstone message, you know. Uh, usually that means someone's screaming and yelling a lot. I'm not going to be doing that. Now, this week and particularly, I won't be in two weeks' time. Um, But it relates to judgment. To understand how that is, we need to go back a little bit earlier. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 13. In Genesis chapter 13, we've got Abraham, and he's got this nephew named Lot. We've referenced this before in this origin story, this study of Genesis that we've been in. Um, Abraham's been called out of a place called Ur of Chaldees, a it wasn't someone like hesitant, I'm not sure about that. That was actually the name of the city. And he'd come over to the land of Canaan, and they're in tents. They're herdsmen for the most part, and um, pretty wealthy ones at that. In this chapter, what we encounter, though, is that Abraham and his nephew Lot are in conflict. A little bit them, but more really their guys. You know how sometimes the bosses can be okay, but sometimes the people that are working for them have competitive elements going into play. That's kind of what was happening here. There was competition over the wells. There was competition over some of the grazing. There's like, we were here first. What are you doing here? Hey, our guys are more important than your guys, whatever the case may be. So there's a conflict that's breaking out between them. And so that's what takes place in the 13th uh, chapter. Um, And so at one point in time, Abram says to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine. For we're brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. 
So Abram's sitting here saying, look, we're relatives, but sometimes a little space, have you ever noticed that sometimes a little space with your relatives is a good thing? Especially over holiday time, maybe, you know? You know, three days after three days, what? You know, relatives and fish both stink or something like that. So, so they're asking for a little distance. Sometimes fences make good neighbors. And so they're saying, look, we got a little conflict going on here. We don't want that. We're brothers. Let's get a little space. And Abraham's the older one, and he says to his younger nephew, look, at, you pick the best place. You pick whatever you want. I'll take the leftovers. Lot looks up, and he sees the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord. Um, like the land of Egypt. And it's interesting, the subnote here in parentheses is this was before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. This was a pivotal event in, in mankind's history. It's something that continues to mark. In fact, the place where Sodom and Gomorrah stand is alongside the Dead Sea, which is still the lowest depressed place I think it is on the entire planet, and it's a unique ecosystem. And it's clear something happened there. Even secular scientists say something occurred that involved great heat. They don't know if it was a meteor or a comet, what, but something um, impacted that area, and you can still see the remains of it today. And so he looks and sees this really easy place to handle. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of Jordan. He set out towards the east, and the men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Uh, We'll pick that up at another time. And so, Lot looks out. He picks what's the best place. Um, It happens to be near the cities of the plain of which Sodom and Gomorrah were one of several. We find out later that not only does he pitch his tent near there, but at some point in time, he actually moves into the city, evidently. Because we find that he is at the city gates at one point in time. That doesn't mean he was a people watcher. It meant that he was more likely an official of the city at that point in time, recognized as one of the more prominent men of the city. And so they would sit at the city gates, kind of as a quasi-city council slash court system, and people would bring things before them, either business or of a judicial matter. And so he decides to move in this area, and while he still does his herds and everything else, he, he's so close to Sodom that eventually he actually moves in. The closer we get to certain things, the more normalization occurs. Things that would have horrified us or disturbed us before become, become normal to us. And so at some point in time, he leaves his tent, he moves into the city. Abraham, on the other hand, he stays out in the countryside. He stays out under the wide open sky, uh, and, and that's where his location is. Um, this concept of a contrast between nature, if you will, or a natural setting, a garden setting even, and that of the city is something you see throughout Scripture. And we'll come back to that in a moment of time. Um, as the time goes past, there's these three visitors that show up in the 18th chapter of Genesis. And it says it this way. It says, The Lord, or Yahweh, appeared to Abraham near the giant trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low. And it says it's the Lord, but it's three men. So right now your head's going there saying, Oh, so there's some Trinity thing going on here. No, that's not what's taking place. Um, What's happening is it, it appears to be a representation of what's called the angel of the Lord again. And whenever we see that, it's big words here, pre-incarnate representation of Jesus Christ. In other words, there's, there's something of a representation of God 
that is one of these three. Now, the reason we say that is because um, that individual continues to speak with Abram. Now, all three are together, Abram, and hospitality is a big thing in the Far East, a really big thing. And so he's just ready to receive these people right off the bat without even knowing who they are because hospitality is big. In fact, you'll hear that that's actually why Sodom was destroyed because they were inhospitable. And that's not true at all. We'll discuss that later. So he's being hospitable to these three guys, one who's the angel lord. The other two are your basic garden variety angels, if there is such a thing. And um, as they're talking at one point in time, and he's giving things, they ask about Sarah. Uh, it says, there in the tent. Then the Lord says, I'll surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah's listening at the entrance, and um, she's already old and advanced in years, so Sarah's probably in her 90s, and she's thinking, I'm going to have a kid. I had no children at 90. I'm going to have a kid. That's not happening. And so she laughs to herself. So it wasn't even out loud. It was a little snicker. But it was inside. She's laughing to herself. She thought, after I'm worn out and my master is old, well, I now have this pleasure. And the Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I'll return to you next year and I'll have a son. Sarah's afraid. So she lied and said, I did not laugh. Number one clue of reality, don't lie to God. <laughs> Just a bad move. Bad things come out of that sometimes. In this case, though, um, he says, yes, you did laugh. Calls her out. And, uh, and then, then, then this is laid on her. Okay, since, since you don't believe this, since you laughed, here's what we're going to do. You're going to call your son Isaac, which means laughter. So every time you call your son, every single day, you're going to remember this moment that you screwed up and tried to fake me out, all right? So she had to carry that for the rest of her life. It's at this point in time that there begins to be a conversation, and um, God kind of speaks to the two angels, says, should I, should I hide anything from Abraham? You know, he's, he's a friend of mine. He knows things. Maybe, should, I, should I not let him know what's up? So, so he's going to do He's going to say, yeah, I'm, I'm here to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. There's been some horrible things that I've heard in regards to it. And, uh, um, and so we're going to destroy it. And the two angels leave at that point in time. They head towards Sodom and Gomorrah, specifically Sodom. And they come into play a little later. Um, the Lord talks to Abram. Abram was a merchant guy before he became a herdsman, and so he was a wheeler and dealer. And so um, at one point in time, he's realizing what's going to happen, and he realizes that his nephew is part of this scenario. But also, I think maybe his general sense of compassion, he says, whoa, you're going to destroy an entire city full of people? What are people going to say if you go around destroying things all the time? Let's put it this way. If there were 50 righteous people in this town, would you destroy it with 50 righteous people? You'd kill 50 righteous people in the midst of all the rest? And God says, no, I'll hold off if there's 50. Abraham, merchant, sensing a little opening here, says, how about 40? Would you do it for 40? No, I wouldn't. I won't do it if there's 40. How about 30? No, Look, I know I'm pressing things here right now, but how about if there were 20? Yeah, it says, all right, if there's 20 righteous people in this whole town, we'll save it. And Abraham says, look, I know I'm really pushing the boundaries here with you big time right now, but what about 10? Would you do it if there were 10? 
And he's probably sitting here thinking, okay, there's Abraham, maybe, or a lot, maybe, uh, and then maybe his, his, the people who are going to marry his daughters, hopefully, right. maybe there's enough for 10 to save the town. And God says, yes, 10. Okay, we're done making a deal. We're done here. It's over, okay? So the angels go in, and they're going to explore what they're going to explore. This is the setup to the passage of Scripture that we just read. This is what is taking place here. Now, it says, as I said, in Genesis 13, 12 and 13, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain, pitched his tents near Sodom. The people of Sodom were wicked, and they were sinning greatly against the Lord. There's a theme that we see throughout Scripture. It begins back with um, Babel, and it begins back in the Tower of Babel, when people at that time decide they're going to get together and they're going to form a city. Up till that time, everyone's been living in natural things. In fact, the original natural setting of mankind was not a city setting. It was the Garden of Eden. That was to be what was happening across the entire planet. This is garden and this, this coexistence with nature. And, and before you think I'm going hippie in 1960s on you, that's not what I'm talking about, all right? But, but the idea of, of a blending of nature and a natural setting Instead, when the breaking of relationship that was part of that natural setting, it's not about worshiping nature, it's not about going over the board with the environmental stuff, though there's some importance to that. It's talking about a relationship with God with nothing in between him and us, with no insulation, with just, just open contact. And that's what the garden was supposed to be about. Man breaks from that, and one of the first things he does, we find in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a, a tower that reaches into the sky. And this will make us famous, keep us from being scattered all over the world. There's this idea of, of being famous, of being important, of having self-sufficiency, of having insulation and protection against all the, the things that are around us in this place. And so in Genesis, we see it starting with Babel, we see it with Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it with Nineveh. You see it as with Babylon, which is a variation of Babel. In fact, at the end in Revelation, you see a contrast between Babylon, which represents the city of man and all that's part of that and its wickedness. You see a contrast with that and what's referred to as the city of God. The New Jerusalem. The only town that has some reference in a positive is not Jerusalem even as it is because it turns pretty wicked at times. But it's the idea of a new Jerusalem which that's kind of a, a shadow of. And this new Jerusalem will have God at the center. And so this contrast between, between cities and nature, if you will, this concentration of men, this thing that overgrows with evil that is a sense of normalization is powerful. Babel building towers, it continues on. I've, how many of you have heard of pencil towers? It's not a place where you store your pencils. A pencil tower is, is this, if you can take a shot up there. This is the Steinway Tower. This is in New York, and that's not an optical illusion. It's a, it's a, it's a series of towers that started in the 1970s in Hong Kong, which has the highest concentration of them. And they're particularly narrow, limited structures that go very, very high. And most often they are residences. And so that particular one has like one residence, one penthouse, if you will, per floor. That area is the highest concentration of real estate wealth in the world. There have been floors that have gone for $25 million 
most of us in this room, if not all of us, are never going to get one of those, all right? But they rise incredibly high, very near within their masterpieces, marvels of engineering. It has been said that in some of these pencil towers, when the wind is high, you feel a little sway. That sometimes water will slosh inside the sink. I'm not moving to one of those. (laughs) But they are incredible statements of mankind's sophistication, of our engineering skills, of our pride. Cities have this representation of domination. They want to conquer like Babylon and Nineveh. Of pride above all. Of self-sufficiency, arrogance, violence even is linked oftentimes with the city. It's rare that you're walking out in the countryside and out there maybe in, in a park somewhere like Stony, and you're really concerned about gang violence. A bunch of rabbits jumping out at you. It's when we're walking in some of the darker places of the city. And I say this as someone who's always lived in large cities. Lived in Lansing, Flint, Detroit. I had an agreement with God from way back that I get to live in a city with an NFL franchise at least. I'm still wondering whether that's this town. (laughs) But I like and enjoy large cities. But there's something about the quietness of nature. Do you know that if you're in a depressed state, what some counselors will tell you to do is to take walks out in nature? Not in the cement and and the steel and the concrete, but to take walks in nature. That just by walking out in nature, just by hiking, being out there, that it can change your disposition. My mother, my parents had the privilege. They they relocated 25 years ago to Kailua Kona, the big island of Hawaii, originally to work with the missions organization out there in their retirement. My father's passed away, and my mother continues to live out there. And so um, we visited her over the holiday uh, for what is probably one of, if not our last visit, because eventually she'll probably be moving, or, or she'll be moving, one of the two. Um, she's 91 right now. We used to, when we went out there, it was the cheapest vacation I could have, because if I use miles to get out there, I'm not paying anything, and then we have their condo, which is just a small little condo. It had a, a bedroom and a, con- a little... little uh, living room type thing and small kitchenette. It's very small. And when the boys were small, we could all sleep on the floor on the couch. So I'm not paying anything for lodging. They had a car there that I could use. It was the cheapest thing I could do. And we'd always try to have maybe a couple of days out at a hotel. Well, this last time we go out, the guys had become much larger. So there was no room inside their place. So we, we got a, rented a place in their unit there, in their, unit in their area there and, and hung out. But at one point in time, I had them out at a hotel and I went out to pick up uh, the family because <clears throat> I've been staying quietly back a bit. As I came back in, I, I can't visualize this for you effectively. I, I, I'll make a try at least on it. Kona is a very small, sleepy little town. And it's the biggest town for the most part, except for one other on the whole island. There are buildings that are, there. most of them are, are one-story, two-story buildings. There's a few six, seven-story buildings or so like that. But other than that, it's just quiet, little, sleepy town. And so I'm coming back in as I'm coming over one of the hilltops. I can't really quite see the town because it's nestled down a bit more. But a cruise ship had come in. And it was disturbing. This thing rose 20 stories high in the bay. It was this huge mechanical monstrosity in the middle of all the... I'm starting to sound like a bohemian now, aren't I? Yeah. 
Well, Bohemia is a section of Czechoslovakia, and my background's Czech, so maybe it is. So I see this huge thing, and I'm just sitting in it. It clashed so stark with this beautiful, gleaming, technological marvel that dwarfed every single thing, practically the entire village. It was stark in contrast, an intrusion into the moment of time. And it feeds into this conversation that we're having here right now. I want to talk to you about a best-selling book. It was a bestseller in 427 AD. Augustine wrote it. It was entitled The City of God. And he wrote this book um, in, in, in reaction to the sack of Rome. Rome had been uh, um, sacked about 10, 15 years earlier uh, by some Visigoths, a guy named Alaric and all. And it shocked them. It, it blew away the Roman Empire. In 800 years, nobody had penetrated the walls of Rome. And so he wrote this in response to it because Rome had become Christian for the last hundred years or so. And so the question is, what was going on here with all this? And, and so he writes this masterpiece work of theology entitled The City of God. In this, he describes the city of this world, what he calls the earthly city, what he calls the city of man. And he talks also about the city of God. And he says, these two cities or societies or peoples are marked by the standards by which they live. In other words, the culture is different for the city of man versus the city of God. The earthly city or the city of man lives by the standard of the flesh, whereas the city of God lives by the spirit. But he said this, what ultimately distinguishes these two cities are their loves. What distinguishes them are their loves. Quote, We see, then, that the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The city of man was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. Self-love. And so we have contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt of self. In other words, we push ourselves down and say we are nothing compared to God. In this one, we lift ourselves up and say, oh, we are everything. God is nothing. In fact, the city of man glories in itself and seeks glory from men. But the city of God, the heavenly city, glories in the Lord. And so he contrasts these two cities, and he says it's a little bit like Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares. Good things growing up next to weeds and bad things. And how do you deal with it? Well, you have to wait until the harvest, the judgment time. And then you come and cut it all down. And then you distribute the wheat for the good things. You take the weeds and you throw it in the fire. In the same way, the city of man is somewhere intertwined into the city of God, into this different culture or, or kingdom that is present now, but is also going to stand for eternity. He contrasts the garden that was originally in Eden with Babylon, with the works of God and with, with the total engagement of God in relationship with those things that we insulate and cover ourselves up with. This difference, this, this contrast that he tries to express in this time is carried throughout the scripture. We see it even with the children of Israel, Abraham's descendants in Egypt, Egypt is the epitome of culture and technological advancement of the time. With Pharaoh at the very center, a man to be worshipped and praised. And yet they're pulled out of that place and into the desert to learn the lessons of the desert. 
to be centered around God. You see, Jesus, he'll speak in the cities, but most oftentimes, they're speaking on the hillsides. The reason why they had to feed the 5,000 is because they're on the hillsides. There's no Burger King nearby. There's something about this place where there's nothing between God and us, just his nature and what he's created. And instead, what we find is in our pride, above all, in our arrogance, in our self-sufficiency, in our violence, in our domination, all this, we build cities, concrete and steel, massive structures. Even here now, in this place, we are not exposed at all to the presence of God in nature as such. The only windows that at one time opened to the outside have been covered over by new construction. And even then, they were stained glass our perspective of how maybe things should look a little prettier, a little nicer than they really were. You're sitting in chairs. You're comfortable. You're relatively um, obscure. Nobody can know who you want to be, who you are, unless you want them to do so. We build these things up. The children of Israel are called out of Egypt into a desert to experience God and the presence of God in a way they didn't in the midst of the technological marvels of man. In the same way, the church is called the ecclesia or the called out ones. We're ones that are called out from various cultures, various places to learn the ways of God, to enter into relationship with God. Hebrews chapter 11 Verses 8 through 10 says, By faith, this is in the New Testament now, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would labor receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. But he lived in this place that was promised to him, but like a stranger in a foreign country. I have, I have been in St. Petersburg and Moscow, and I've spoken Russian but that's not my native tongue. I've been in Paris and I've spoken French, but that's not my language. I've been in Rome and I've spoken Italian, but it's not my language. I've been in London before and I've tried to speak that language and I still can't. (laughs) They use different letters and it's just weird. I've been in these different places and I can enjoy them, but it's not who I am. It's not my culture. It's not my language. It's not the values that I was born with. I was a foreigner in that place and in that time. And in the same way, we are foreigners in this land, even as Americans. Because my final identifier is not that of an American. My final identifier is to be that of a follower of Jesus Christ. There is a city of man that I live and work in. And there's a culture and a language that I can speak, but that is not who I am, nor do I want to have that as my final place of resting, because it is temporal. It is temporary. There is a city of God that has foundations that are built solid. In fact, it says in this passage, for he was looking, Abraham, forward to the city. The city. He'd come out of the city of Ur. He's looking for the city with foundations. And that term foundations implies something so eternal, so deep, so solid that is unshakable, whose architect and builder is God. There are great cities in the world who've been overthrown in their time. Babylon saw its day. 
Nineveh is. Other places and times. But there's a city of God that will never be overthrown and will never be taken down. And that is a city that we belong to. That is the one that we be part of. And I don't know if I can press this hard enough before your face, but that culture is different than the one that we are immersed in. And because we are immersed in it, the normalization of things, just like, like, like it was with Lot, at one point in time, we're camping outside the city. The next thing you know is we're living right in the heart of it before you know long we're one of the more prominent people in it. And things that were once foreign to us now become our native tongue. And things we would never have considered become part of who we are. Cities are about power, glory, self-love. That's the city of man. The city of God has God at the center. It's about two loves, loves of self or love of God. It has God at the center. It's a different value, a different feel. This whole thing has entered into the church where we see pastors even today that are sitting here and saying, oh, I want power. And I'm going to take power in some way and I can manipulate people and shape things and draw. I want glory. Yeah, we're talking about God, but really we're talking about glorifying me, aren't we? Yeah. I remember someone who was incredibly foolish years ago using one of my favorite passages at a time when they were ascending and getting greater things and tried to have a false humility by quoting the passage where John has his disciples coming to him and saying, John, all the guys are leaving and joining Jesus' crowd. And John's response in that moment of, of, of de-elevation and of loss was the city of God, not the city. Because the city of man would say, let's go kill Jesus. Let's start a whisper campaign against him. Let's go talk to those guys and, 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 and make them feel guilty or whatever else. Instead, the city of God was at the center of his life. And so when his disciples come and say this to him, he makes a statement, he must increase meeting Jesus and I must decrease. You don't say that passage when you're ascending. You don't say that passage when you're gaining. You don't say that passage in glory. You say that passage when you are losing something for the glory of God. You quote that passage when you're living a life of sacrifice. You quote that passage because you reside in the city of God with him at the center and not the city of man where you are the center of things. This is the contrast that we see in Scripture. This is what we see developing with Abraham and Lot. And this is at the center of any understanding that we're ever going to have of Sodom and Gomorrah and what happens there. In Hebrews 13, 14, it captures the thought that, that we're to have. For here, here, here in Detroit, we do not have an enduring city. We have learned that, I think, over the years. But we are looking for the city that is to come. And it's not New York. And it's not San Francisco. And it's not LA. It's not Paris or Beijing or London or Caracas. It's none of those. All these will fade. But there is a city who at the heart is God. The question I have for you this morning is what is at the center of your city?
I was born in Traverse City. I used to tell people that that um, we moved after 10 days uh, to Lansing. And I used to tell people that, that, you know, I was born in Traverse City and then word got out, so we had to move. <laughs> so I don't know anything about Traverse City. I, I spent my life in, in the first 10 years in Lansing. Capital city, university my parents were involved in. And then... Um, through some circumstances I won't go into now, uh, we had to move. We ended up in a small travel trail at first in a small cabin on the outskirts of Grass Lake, population 52. And it was worse than that. We were two or three miles outside of town, a mile more, half mile down a dirt road into some uh, denominational campgrounds. And so during the summer, there was a lot of people there, but during the other nine months of the year, uh, there were only four other families, three other families that were out there and nobody of my age. When I was in Lansing, it may sound strange, but I knew everybody. It was just, it was those days where you could, we were free-range kids. You know what I mean like that? You know, you just call at night and come home. We didn't lock our doors. People from the church came in sometimes and, and left things, which was cool. Come back and find a egg custard waiting for us, which was really cool. Nowadays, we'd be creeped out by that. <laughs> it was a different era. Everyone knew me at school. I'd walk up to school, and I was popular, and I was well-known. I'd walk up, and it was like Norm at Cheers. You know, hey, Norm. It was, hey, Randy. (laughs) Then we moved to Grass Lake. I had a chipmunk. (laughs) That was my friend. It was pitiful. (laughs) I think my dog had killed the mother, and I rescued the chipmunk, the, the baby, and it would sit in my pocket and sometimes be up on my shoulder, and it was, it was cool. Uh, I was very creative in those days. I called him <laughs> Chippy. <laughs> True story. He had a tragic end. Another story. I've looked at that time, and it was a very depressing, difficult time period for our family. But I think if I had not had that, that coming out experience, I, I think if I had not had that moment of coming out of the city and being in the, in the countryside, those long walks, those quiet talks, it was there in that time, in that two years of period of time, which to put perspective was, was about one-fifth of my life at that point in time, was where I heard probably more and learned more about God in that moment and my relationship developed in a way that nothing else had prior to. If I had not had that moment, I wouldn't be who I am now. I wouldn't care probably at all about people on the outside or people who were viewed less than. I would have been wrapped up in the whole world that I would have had there and been the center of. We wrap ourselves with insulation, with our pride, with our arrogance, with pencil towers that we build. We all build them. It can be your family. It could be your career. It can even be a church. And that's probably the most disturbing. Because you walk in and all the cool stuff's there, but there's no presence of God. Abraham stayed in relationship with God in simplicity. Lot moved to the edges and pitched his tent near Sodom 
But before he knew it, he moved into the city. What's at the center of your city? There are two loves, a love of man, a love of self, and a love of God in seeking his face and his presence. What's at the center of your city? Is it the city of man filled with pencil towers that sway in the wind? Technological marvels. Or the city of God where all faces are turned towards the one light that shines and lasts through eternity. So this morning, before we conclude, I'm just going to ask you to pray with me. If you could bow your heads for a minute. And I want you to process your life for a moment. I want you to process your career, your job, your family, what is important to you. What, what of that is the city of man and should be torn down and you need to come out of? Only you know that. Nobody else knows it. Some of these cities are constructed within our own heart and mind and no one else even sees them or knows them. But you do. And God does too. He heard Sarah laughing in the dark there. He hears you, whether it's laughter or tears. So this morning, let's come before him for a moment. Let's just, God, even in, the, in, in this place here now, I ask that your spirit would come and examine our hearts. That, Lord, for those of us that have built city of man and have made that the central part, a love of self, of our own pride, our own arrogance, our own fears even, Lord, and insecurities, that you stripped that away. You rescued Lot from Sodom. Even though he'd moved in there, you rescued him from that, as we'll see in two weeks' time. So, Lord, I pray right now that those of us who've moved into the city of man, that you would rescue us now, that as we cry out to you, Lord, as we tear down these things, these pencil towers that we've built to our own glory and might, that as we submit ourselves to you, as we say we must decrease, you, you, Lord, increase in our lives. Fill the entire city till we see only you so that our culture, our language, our style, our way of doing things are yours and that of the kingdom, that we truly are the ecclesia, the called out ones, that there can be a difference. Lord, as we submit this and reach out to you today, I ask God, we ask, we plead with you, meet with us here, restore within us that garden of relationship and intimacy with you, where those things can be nurtured, I pray. And make this real this day, I ask, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. You know, you close your eyes for just a minute. These guys have just come back from retreat. And I want to say something to those online. Right now, this whole church is packed out right now. There's a lot of people actually attending church. And I know some of you can't, and that's all right. And some of you are traveling, and that's all right. And some of you are just lazy and need to get your butt off a couch. Okay? So for the first two, I bless you. For the third one, <laughs> I love you. <laughs> okay? These guys are barely conscious because they've just come back from retreat. <laughs> and so I'm going to ask you to do this favor for me. Would you all please just turn around and face this crowd out here? These are our young people. Good portion. 
And I got to tell you, I, I have an affection for young people. I always have. I've been a youth pastor. I still am deep in my heart. So I appreciate you guys. Thank you for coming and joining us in here right now. It is so cool seeing you guys and having to be part of this today. Now, I had you guys turn, though, for a specific reason to face these people. Because some of these people you belong to, and I, you need to take them home with you. Okay? You really need to do that. No swapping. Okay? Take them as they are. All right? You can't trade off. All right? Um, appreciate you guys being here. And the team that went out with them and all and did all the work as well over the time. John and his whole gang. Appreciate you guys. And all that's well and good, but now it's time to go eat something and go to sleep for the rest of the day, all right? Let's have a final prayer. Father, we ask your blessing right now upon our young people. Lord, we ask that you grow and strengthen them in faith and in relationship with one another. I pray, Lord, that as they have just little squabbles or insecurities or petty disagreements, that, that even like with Abraham and Lot, that you'd resolve those, if not by a little space of separation, by some other means, but that they'd be resolved and they would continue to live as brothers and sisters together. So, Lord, I pray your blessing of peace, and I pray that you'd be at the center of this church and of our individual lives. We commit these things into your hands, Lord. Go before us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.